do turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. We will be in 4 through uh, 10a this morning. Let's pray. Our God is your people. We uh, long for the day of vindication when all things will be made right. Lord, we see the great wickedness of the world around us and even the corruption within the church, your bride whom you hold so dear. God, we await the coming of King Jesus who will once and for all subdue all his and our enemies. God, you are just. You will not let sin and blasphemy go unpunished. And so we cry out to you this morning for the quick return of Jesus who will judge the world in righteousness. And we do do so with the confidence that we will be numbered among the godly on that day, uh, but only on the merits of Christ and Him alone. It is in His name we pray this morning, asking that by the Holy Spirit we may behold wondrous things in Your Word. Amen. Let's stand and read God's Word. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10a. For God, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued unrighteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is God's Word. You may be seated. We discussed last week, open chapter 2, up by talking about false teachers and the wolves that come in among the sheep. And uh, we talked the week before that about how we can have confidence in God's Word because we have the prophets and we have the apostles, and so we have confidence in what God has given us. And I think uh, the more I go through Second Peter, the more the word confidence is emerging as kind of the theme word of Second Peter, that we're to have confidence. And the question that kind of arises this morning is how are we to have confidence in light of the fact that there are false teachers and wolves among the sheep. How can we have confidence that we do, in fact, have the right teaching, or that we know God, or that that one day the righteous will be vindicated by God? How do we know, as verse 9 says, that, that the Lord really does know how to rescue the godly from trials? I love the story from Joshua, the beginning of Joshua, Joshua 3 and 4. Uh, as they come down to the Jordan River and, and they come to 
town of Shatim, and there's there's this river, the Jordan River, and it's in flood stage, a big rushing river, and these millions of people, a couple million probably, have to cross the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land. And God says uh, through Joshua, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. This is what he was going to do to give them confidence in him. And He told them, as you go down to the river, the priests will walk into the water, and as you do, the waters will be separated as at the Red Sea. And it's interesting, I often picture that as kind of this narrow channel opens up, but really it's 20 miles upstream in the town of Adam that the water piled up. It's this giant swath that God just stopped the river Jordan. As the people crossed through, God commanded that they take stones of remembrance, 12 stones, and pile them up. And this was for the purpose that as they looked back on those stones, they would remember what God had done. And as they sojourn in this land, as they battle for the land that God promised them, and ideally as they thrive for many generations, though we know that the ideal wasn't always there, but they could look back, they could tell their children, and they could look at these stones of remembrance and say, look at the history of what Yahweh has done. We, as God's people, need to remember God's faithfulness from ages past if we're going to have confidence going into the future. We can, in a sense, look at God's resume. You know, resumes take take history in, your, in the form of your resume, and employers will look at that and say, kind of try to predict, like, are they going to be successful here in this company? We can look back at God's resume, in a sense, his past history of what he's done, and thereby have confidence for the future. Peter's goal here is to warn and encourage the saints to persevere uh, through these trials of, of false teachers and not to conform to their teaching, but to press on, holding the faith once for all delivered. And in order to continue to inspire confidence in them, Peter gives us this kind of brief overview of God's what is an extensive resume. It is his belief that by looking back, we will be assured going forward. So we persevere in light of God's historic faithfulness. This morning, Peter directs our attention to God, both as our Savior and our Judge, and how He has always been for the people of God, both a Savior and a Judge. So first, first we'll look at His justice in these three events that Peter lists. Uh, Michael and I were talking this week over lunch that, that God's justice is to be equally worshipped as is His love. It's all a part of God. Michael brought up to me the the doctrine of the simplicity of God. That God is not the sum of his attributes. God does not simply adhere to the, the principles, external principles of love and justice. But he is love and he is justice. Kevin DeYoung says his attributes do not stick to him. He is what they are. So the just judgments of God produce confidence in us because they reveal God's character. And God does not change. So first, the first event here, the fall of the angels. Uh, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. 
The Bible is fairly sparse on information about the fall of the angels. So we don't want to take this too far. But clearly something happened with the angels, between God and the angels. Kind of in the public consciousness, in the way I always heard it, was that the angels followed Lucifer in his rebellion against God. But I don't know that the Bible quite says that exactly. It talks about Lucifer doing that in Isaiah, but it doesn't say necessarily about the angels. But something like that happened. Jude and Second Peter are kind of parallel books in the Bible. Second Peter, probably borrowing from Jude, um, Jude verse 6, says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal, ja- in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment, the great day. So the Jews also had kind of a, publish, uh, a public consciousness. Um, in Jewish literature, we read some about the angels, and we talked in First Peter about the book of First Enoch and the stories of the watchers. And these, these books were prevalent in those days in Jewish culture. And Jude and Second Peter are likely referencing this literature. So that's not to say it's a commendation of, say, the book of First Enoch as an inspired book of God, or even that the stories are absolutely true. But these books, these authors are using uh, these things that are familiar, language from Jewish sources that they would have been familiar with to explain these ideas. So it's not as clear as we would like, but we have enough to know that the angels disobeyed God and God put them under judgment. And Peter's point here is if God executed judgment on the sins of angelic creatures who are superior beings, we can be sure he will execute judgment on teachers who tarnish and mock the truth today. Scoffers mock Jesus, and and we read about that in chapter 3 of this book, that they they mock his coming. When is he going to come, they say. They don't believe that he's going to come in justice and judgment. Calvin says that this is an argument from the greater to the less. If God imprisoned these superior beings, surely he will imprison mere humans who are mockers and blasphemers. So it may sound morbid to talk about justice or, or God sending creatures to hell, but it gives us confidence, really, when we realize that God does this, when God is just. In the first place, it gives us confidence because we don't need to be intimidated. We don't need to be intimidated by those mockers. Sometimes we feel like, well, they're mocking me, and I'm going to shrivel up into a little raisin because I'm terrified of being mocked. We don't have to be afraid. We know with whom we stand. Oftentimes these teachers who mock the faith are charismatic and popular and we want to be well-liked and we want to be identified with people who are charismatic and well-liked. And we are often cast off when we hold to the truth. And so we need not be intimidated by that. We know with whom we stand. Also, We know that we are walking in the way of truth. So we don't need to waver in the truth at at the winds of doctrine that these men blast at us. Steering clear from them is wise because we know their fate and we don't want to share their fate. The second story of judgment is the deluge of the ancient world. Verse 5 
If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. God does not abide wickedness. Sometimes it takes him more time than we would like to serve justice. But Genesis 6, 5 through 7 records his judgment. He says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds from the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. So in that context, do, do the false teachers really suppose, or maybe they don't believe in this God at all, but may, may, do they really suppose they will escape? The Lord executed justice on these people in Noah's day, but he's totally cool with, with unbelief and mockery today. I pointed out last week that the false teachers would deceive not just a few, but many, the multitudes, and they do have strength in numbers. But do their numbers give them protection from the wrath of God? What are the enemies of God going to do? Take their multitudes and make an army against God, the God who flooded the entire world? He is a consuming fire. Hear how Isaiah describes him in chapter 40, verses 20 through 25. He says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely as their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. So the people of the earth, the the wicked people of the earth, even the rulers of the earth are like a dandelion. He blows on them. That's God's power compared to us. God's resume reads kind of like this. There's, you know, the position and the dates you filled it. Creator and sustainer of all things. Eternity past to present. King of the universe. Eternity past to present. Divine judge, eternity past to present, and even eternity future. So we need not, as Christians, as the people of God, be afraid of the wickedness in the world. But we should be very afraid of joining it. As Matthew said, or Jesus says in Matthew, Do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul. third story is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 6, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. God's character is consistent through time. He's not impulsive. He's not capricious. And we can be confident in his consistency. God turned Sodom and Gomorrah into a pile of ashes. For grave sexual sin, he calls it sensuality, that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. 
Peter also decries in Second Peter the sensual conduct and teaching of the false teachers. We can think down through history. You think of like the libertines in Calvin's day. And even today, sensuality and sexual sin are rampant. Everywhere we turn, there is an unwelcome temptation, an unwelcome image. Or think about today the abortion holocaust or the sexual revolution. These things have crept into the church and really to the point where it's no longer creeping. It's just there. Uh, I'll pick on Rob Bell since he's an easy target. Uh, There was an interview, you may have heard it or read about it, but between he and Oprah and, and Rob Bell and his wife had written this book on marriage. Here's a little taste of the interview. Oprah says, I think it's great that you made a conscious choice to include gay marriage in here, referring to the book. Rob says, absolutely. She says, yeah, why? Why did you include that? Rob Bell responds, because one of the oldest aches in the bones of humanity is loneliness. I mean, it's one of those things that goes way back. Loneliness is not good for the world. And so whoever you are, gay or straight, it is totally normal, natural and healthy to want someone to go through life with. It's central to our humanity. Oprah asks, when is the church going to get that? And hear his response. I think culture is already there and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, co-workers and neighbors, and they love each other and they just want to go through life with someone. God made Sodom and Gomorrah an ashen wasteland for attitudes like that. Peter says, this is an example of what will happen to the ungodly. So then why does the modern preacher cry, peace, peace? Rob Bell, apparently still in the name of Jesus Christ, promotes sexual sin and denigrates God's design for marriage. And he likewise cries, peace, peace, as this type of preacher in his book, Love Wins, because in that book he promotes universalism, denies the reality of hell. Now, again, I pick on Bell because he's low-hanging fruit. There are other people who are more difficult to discern. But honestly, this type of thing is rampant in the church, and this man's clearly apostate, but I know quite a few people who, from historically reformed conservative roots, have been swept up by this very type of doctrine. It is truly in the church. The mature and steadfast Christian will not be swept up by it. We know God's character. We have seen his justice borne out, and he will not sit idle. Justice will be served in due time, and and we can be confident in that. So having looked at his justice, let's turn to God's faithfulness now, faithfulness to save the godly. We need to remember God's faithfulness from, from ages past. God does not leave us on our own. We look back through history. History bears witness of this to us. God takes care of his people. Even in judgment, we're preserved. I think back to the Exodus and many of the, the plagues that plagued Egypt. They were kind of, you know, 
cordoned off. Israel was not affected by many of them. And ultimately, they were spared of the worst one by the very blood of the lamb over their doorposts. So the first story of God's salvation here is back in verse 5 with Noah. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Uh, Ian Murray's biography of J.C. Ryle is titled, Prepared to Stand Alone. J.C. Ryle was a man who held on popular truths and preached them, and he was willing to stand alone if it meant standing with God. And, And that kind of reminds me of Noah. Here's Noah, this herald of righteousness, you know, this lonely herald with a stupid boat in the middle of dry land. God responded to the wickedness of the world. He deluged it. Literally, the word is kataklusman. You can hear that cataclysm in there. It's an interesting word. The whole world was deluged with the flood. And this was not blind rage because we see God didn't just throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. He preserved this one righteous herald and his family. God preserves his own. Now, why was Noah righteous? read in Hebrews 11:7 by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith Noah believed God uh, confidence ultimately is not a matter of our own resolve or our own tight logic it is a matter of simple belief did God say it? If he did say it, it is true. God said, Noah, build a gopher wood ship in the middle of dry land. Okay? And that gets to the bottom of the whole thing. Is God going to fulfill his promises? Do we believe God? Do we have confidence in his judgments and his preserving power? Peter here bolsters that confidence by showing us God is not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. He will preserve those who are his by faith. Second story example of preservation here is in, in verse 7 and the rescue of Lot. It says in verse 7, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So again, once again, despite rampant wickedness and the judgment of God, God preserves his own. He preserved the righteous. Lot was not one who engaged in the sin. He was not flippant about the sin. It says, this is interesting language, it says he tormented his righteous soul over the things he heard and saw. He hated the sin around him. And so he was numbered among the ungod or among the godly. I think grief over sin is a marker of righteousness. We see in Psalm 31, David cries out, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Isaiah, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Jesus at times marveled at the people's unbelief in their sin. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. I think sometimes we have a, a flippant, cavalier attitude towards sin. Perhaps we're desensitized in many ways toward the sin around us. 
we kind of develop this boys will be boys attitude or young folks will be young folks attitude and, and you know we were we were young and dumb too I still am we are sinners too and so we don't need to be holier than thou but we should be grieved when we encounter sin genuinely grieved for example that extramarital sex is commonplace in our world you, you know it's not just oh well it's just to be expected we're used to it now we should be really and truly grieved not to cast judgment or to delight in judgment but it should in fact motivate us to warn of coming judgment or for example we should be genuinely grieved when we see our friends taking up and or approving of homosexual practice or our toll should our soul should be tormented over abortion the abortion holocaust when we drive by planned parenthood we should turn a little green. I do every time. Turn, driving through Glenwood. It makes me sick. Sin like these are, is so common in media. We kind of just watch movies and, and shows and we see it in media and we shrug it off because we're used to it. We're desensitized. Sin should be grievous to us. Sin is a, an affront to God and damaging to the souls of men. And its rampancy should break our hearts as it did Lot. So God rescued the man that was distressed over sin. And Lot too, like Noah, like J.C. Ryle, he stood alone, but he received the favor of the one person whose favor really counts. It was not that he earned this preservation by some sort of moral excellence, but he, like Noah, walked by faith, believing that the law of God was authoritative over and above the lawless passions of his countrymen. Finally, here we come to kind of the, the point, the pinnacle of Peter's text here. Um, and it, this whole if-then statement began way back in verse 4. He said, if. And now, finally, in verse 9, we get to the then of this sentence. It's one long sentence. Verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteousness under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. If you want to turn over to Luke uh, chapter 17, it's a fascinating parallel text. Jesus says in Luke 17:26 through 33 Just as it was in the day of Noah so will it be in the days of the son of man They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all Likewise just as it was in the days of Lot they were eating and drinking buying and selling planting and building But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all so will it be when the son of man is revealed on that day let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away and likewise let the one who is in the field not turn back remember lot's wife whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it 
but whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus plainly says that the day of judgment will be just as it was in the days of Noah and of Lot. And sometimes we question, does God really know? Does he know what he's doing? We, we cry out like the psalmist, how long, O Lord? Why do the wicked prosper? Peter affirms for us, God does preserve the godly and judge the wicked. And he has a final word for, he says, those who indulge the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. He says, they especially will receive a particularly heavy sentence. God does know how to rescue the godly from trials, or or literally that word trials is this idea of proving or testing. He knows how to rescue us from this season of testing. There are two categories of people in this verse, verses 9 and 10. There's the godly and there are the unrighteous. We saw in in Luke, Jesus' example here of Lot's wife. She wanted to have a foot in both camps. She wanted to keep a foot on either side of the fence and she proved by that that she was a member of the ungodly. The godly are those who have faith and who believe what God has said and walk by faith. And by grace. God has not left us without an impeccable resume, one which inspires confidence in us. You know, we at times waver, we are at times unsure that God will come through for us. We do feel as though righteousness will will never prevail, that no justice will be served, that the people of God will face the flames of persecution forever and never be vindicated. At times we're weak in faith as we await God's promises, but we have this opportunity to look back, always to look back in the Bible, that God has been faithful, that he will continue as he always has. The God who wrote history is also the God who wrote the future. He is consistent. Ultimately, the the high point of what we look back on is the cross of Jesus Christ. If we doubt that Jesus will come back, that he will vindicate us, that he will put the wicked to justice, we look back on the cross. God does, in fact, know how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So I'll leave you with a quote uh, from J.C. Ryle and then close by reading Psalm 14. J.C. Ryle says, We want more boldness among the friends of truth. There is far too much tendency to sit still and wait for committees and number our adherents. We want more men who are not afraid to stand alone. It is truth, not numbers, which shall always in the end prevail. We have the truth, and we need not be ashamed to say so. The judgment day will prove who is right, and to that day we boldly appeal. I'll read Psalm 14 as as a closing passage of Scripture. I think it's very fitting. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people 
as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Let's be confident that that day will arrive and rejoice that we are among God's people. Amen.